Well, hey, good morning, students. It's good to be with you again this Sunday. Hopefully you have a Bible with you. I invite you to turn with me to uh, the letter of the Galatians. Uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 11. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. We've been in the book of Galatians for the last couple of weeks now, and we've seen Paul kind of introduce the, the main problems that's going on in this letter. Uh, false teachers, false gospels, uh, just really... Um, things that are shaking up the churches in Galatia and leading them away from biblical faithfulness towards something that seems right, but in the end is no gospel at all. It's difficult for me to uh, jump into this text without at least saying that this week's been a difficult week. There's a lot going on in our world, a lot going on in our community, in our culture, and maybe it's an opportunity for us to ask the Lord as Paul to, to search us, to know our ways, to see if there's any wicked way within us. Uh, as we're kind of exposed to see the reality of sin in our world. And and hopefully, as we are walking through this this book, uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, we will see that uh, there are so many things that the gospel will call us to do as believers. We're going to talk about, later on in our message today, uh, Paul's love for the poor and, and taking care of the poor in Jerusalem. The apostles' insistence that, that he and Barnabas would take care of the poor. That those are good things. Those are good implications of the gospel. Uh, but, but if we don't have gospel clarity on what actually is the gospel message, that we can be saved from our sins by grace through faith, that we can have new hearts, that we can have eyes that are open to see the world as it really is, then unfortunately all the things that we may think are good, all the things that we may think are helpful, ultimately will not They won't stick. They won't be permanent. They won't last. And so my prayer for you and and for myself, as I'm thinking through the the tragedies that we've been experiencing with protests and and riots and and unjust killings and and police brutality and and all of the other things that have been going on in in our nation, that we would then look at ourselves and say, am I viewing the world biblically? Am I viewing these problems in a way that Scripture would demand? Am I looking at my neighbors as Jesus would look at them. So hopefully as we go through this letter, we continue to have our our minds just kind of set in that direction of how do I live my life in light of this gospel that is so great, so wonderful, so unique. Today we're going to begin to see Paul's defense against anyone who would preach a false gospel. Ultimately, we saw last week that Paul lives not to please man, but to please God and God alone. Today we'll get a a big biography of Paul and his affirmation as an apostle. So uh, in the New Testament, this is the largest chunk of biographical information we have on Paul. So we'll get to learn a lot about who he is, who he was. Um, But remember that this first section, uh, chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Galatians, is Paul uh, explaining and affirming and clarifying his calling as an apostle and his gospel message. So if you think about the book of Galatians, you can... Divided up into three big sections. Chapters 1 and 2 is Paul's biography, his affirmation as an apostle. Uh, chapters 3 and 4 is Paul's theology, right? We're going to get into kind of the nitty gritty details of what the gospel is and how it transforms maybe what the Jews understood uh, as, a, as the role of the law and other things like that uh, as, it, as it transforms into this new covenant that we have in Christ. And then chapters 5 and 6 are ethics. They are those gospel implications that we talked about earlier. Now that we believe the gospel, how should we live? 
How should we live as faithful believers? So we're still in chapters 1 and 2. So we're still in that biography. We're still in that affirmation section. Paul's going to be proving his authority before the Galatian churches. Why? So that they might return to the gospel of grace that he originally proclaimed to them. So what we're going to find today is great consistency uh, with what Paul believed, with what Paul taught, and with what Paul lived. And my hope for you and for me is that we would have a similar testimony, right? That what we believe and what we teach with our, uh, with our words and with our actions, what we, how we live, all of those things would be consistently based on the gospel. So let's read together Galatians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to start in verse 11. Paul writes, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Let's pray. God in heaven, we ask that you would, by the power of your Spirit, open up our eyes, open up our hearts, that you would uh, unstop our ears so that we might hear and see and behold the glories of the gospel that we might see and hear and know the truth of your word. God, we need your help to do these things. We need your help to be transformed by the power of your word. So we pray, God, as we dive into this text and we learn about this gospel according to the Apostle Paul, this gospel that brings us great freedom, and yet a gospel that must be defended against false teachings, would you help us to be more and more like Jesus this morning? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Paul's going to begin this section by declaring that his gospel is not from man. Instead, it's, it's a gospel that came from Jesus. It came from a revelation of Jesus Christ. So the gospel isn't just good advice from men about God. Right? The gospel is good news from God to mankind. Right? The source of the gospel is not us. God is the source of the gospel. Now, let's, let's talk about Paul for a minute. Uh, he was known as, as Saul of Tarsus. And those, those, two, those two names, Saul and Paul, very similar to what we see in the New Testament when we see Cephas and Peter. It's just uh, different cultural ways to spell these names. So like a, think of like a Hebrew way and a Greek way, right? Just You're in a different uh, environment, a different culture. Your name's going to sound a little bit different. Don't lean too much into the idea that... Uh, you know, Saul was ravaging the church, but then God saved him and changed his name to Paul. You read the book of Acts and you read letters where it mentions Paul, that, those names are interchanged all the time, Paul and Saul. It's just 
different ways to mention the same person. But this guy, Paul of Tarsus, was a rising star in Judaism. He was born in the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. He was raised to be a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul had an incredibly bright future ahead of him in his religious practice. He studied under the famous Rabbi Gamaliel and continued to excel in his practice as a, rab- as a Pharisee. So, so think about Paul as though he is a, uh, a Harvard-educated, whip-smart, well-connected religious leader. Like That's Paul. And not only that, but God had gifted him, obviously, with bravery, with courage, with tenacity. Right? Paul tells us that he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Now that word destroy is what other writers in the first century would use to describe a city being sacked and, and decimated. So, so in other words, Paul was like a terrorist. Right? He was a religious zealot set out to undo the work of these false teachers no matter the cost. Tom Schreiner uh, says this about Paul. He says, The persecution of the church and the slaying of believers was, to Paul's way of thinking before his conversion, not an indication of his sin, but revealed the depth of his commitment and piety. Paul probably saw himself as a new Phineas or Elijah. So Paul believed that he was standing in the line of Jewish heroes throughout history who, in the, in the midst of great uh, consternation and great uh, trial stood firm and defended his faith, right? In the, in the midst of chaos would be faithful to his God, faithful to the teachings of his fathers, no matter what. But notice what he says in verses 13 and 14. He calls the Christian church the church of God. And he says that he was so extremely zealous, not for Judaism, not for faithfulness to Yahweh, but for the traditions of his fathers, So so what Paul had learned now as a Christian is that the church of Jesus Christ is the people of God. The church is the actual people of God. And his zeal towards destroying that people was intense, it was passionate, but it was not directed in the right way. So rather than uh, being faithful to God, rather than being faithful to Yahweh, he actually was through his interpretation and through the interpretation of his fathers, he was actually going in the wrong direction. He received an interpretation of God's word uh, that had plagued the Pharisees for centuries. So rather than recognizing that salvation could only come through the grace of God, right? rather than recognizing that our right standing before God is through his mercy, his kindness, and his grace, he believed, like other Pharisees, that his righteousness... His works would earn him a right standing. So he believed that he had to be faithful in order to earn right standing with God. I mean, surely Paul had heard the teachings of Jesus because he was ravaging the church. The book of Acts tells us that he would go from house to house pulling families out of their homes and throwing them in prison. Surely we know the the faithfulness of these followers of Jesus in the early days would have been proclaiming the gospel to Paul. They would have been saying, Paul, you got it all wrong. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one that we've been looking for. His his death and resurrection proves that. And so Paul had heard the teachings of Jesus, but he rejected it because he had a dead heart. Paul was set on being a faithful Pharisee, not knowing that the God he believed he served was actually the one that he was persecuting. But then something happened, right? We get to 
verses 15 and 16, and we see that Paul met Jesus. He saw the risen Lord for who he really is. God had set him apart before he was born. He called him by his grace and then revealed his son to him. That's the whole gamut of the work of God in salvation. So let's just camp here for a bit. We think about how Paul was saved by God. We think about our own salvation, all right? And we, if we better understand how God saves us by his grace, then we will grow in our gratefulness to him, in our adoration of him, and our commitment to following him faithfully with whatever he calls us to do. So first, we see that Paul says that he was set apart before he was born. This is the doctrine of election, right? Before Paul ever existed, God the Father saw fit to choose him to be his own. Paul knew that from a human standpoint, he would have never chosen God for himself, right? And, and none of us choose God for ourselves. That's why Paul later on in his life wrote in Romans chapter 3 that no one seeks God. He says there's no one good. No, not one. No one seeks God. No one is righteous. No one is actually going in the right direction. Our eyes are blinded and our minds are darkened and our hearts are broken by sin. No, God has to be the one to choose us because we would never choose him. We are, we're morally unable to make that decision because of the sin in our hearts. So, so God the Father chooses Paul. He elects Paul to salvation. And next, we see that God called Paul by his grace. This is what we know as the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. So many people hear the gospel, right? You've been to uh, maybe a, a church service or a rally or something where there's a, a large crowd, a large gathering, and somebody preaches the gospel, right? The gospel is proclaimed. People hear the gospel, but they don't always believe. Um, they, don't, they don't always respond to the gospel. So, so many people will hear the, hear the gospel just like Paul did when he was persecuting the church. And we're all called to make disciples, right? Paul tells us this in Romans 10, that the lost won't believe unless they hear the word. But just hearing the gospel doesn't save a person, right? We could go to uh, a large uh, sports gathering or, or something like that, and, and there's tens of thousands of people or a concert, and, and, and somebody get up and proclaim the gospel. Just because the gospel is heard in their presence doesn't mean that they're automatically saved, right? So it's not just hearing the gospel that brings salvation. But sometimes, as God sees fit by the power of his Spirit, he calls out to sinners through the proclamation of the word. So, so get this, as the word goes out, the Spirit goes with it, right? As the word is proclaimed, the Spirit is doing a work through the word. And when God calls, people respond, right? When God speaks and says that something is going to happen, it happens. We know this already when we think about God's powerful word throughout Scripture, right? He's the one who creates the universe, he calms storms, and he raises the dead with his voice, right? He speaks, and things happen. So when we hear in our hearts the call of the Holy Spirit, we will respond with the gift of faith that he always gives with that call. He opens the eyes of our hearts so that we might for the first time see the world, see the gospel, see our own lives as they truly are. And this was, this was Paul's story, right? He heard 
this proclamation. He, he saw the, the risen Jesus, which we'll get to in just a minute, and he knew. He knew immediately in that moment who he was, who God was, what the world is really like, what his sin is really like, and his desperate need for salvation. And students, this is your story too, right? I mean, we probably heard the gospel dozens and dozens of times before one day we heard it and it clicked, right? One day we heard the gospel being preached to us and it, and it made a kind of sense that it never made before, right? Somehow, for some reason, something in us was changed by the proclamation of the word. And it's not just the first time you hear it, right? I mean, some of us were probably raised in this church for years and years and years and sat under the preaching of faithful pastors. And yet, for years and years and years, we heard the gospel but didn't believe it. But now, as we hear the gospel, as the Holy Spirit calls forth, we respond in faith. Finally, we see that God the Father elects Paul to salvation. The Holy Spirit calls Paul to salvation. And finally, we read that Paul saw the Son of God. God was pleased to reveal Christ to Paul. So when Paul was stunned on the road to Damascus and came face to face with the risen Jesus, the one who was crucified for sinners, everything clicked. He knew once and for all that this is the Lord. So so let's notice, not, not to miss this, that the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are always inseparably active in the salvation of sinners. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all working as one to redeem spiritually dead, lost, enslaved people, to give them life and freedom and eternal life. So next, we need to notice that this salvation event pleased God. I mean, look again at verse 16. God was pleased to reveal His Son to me. Students, when sinners are saved, it's not as though God is frustratingly working out of obligation. Like It's not like he's thinking, man, eternity passed. I called this guy to be a Christian. Uh, but he, he has a terrible life. And he's a, he's a huge sinner. And he doesn't deserve my grace. He doesn't deserve to be saved. I, but but I, I wrote his name in my book in eternity past. And so I guess, here we go. Like I guess I'm going to, Holy Spirit, we're going to call him to salvation. Like That's not the heart of God. He's not frustrated. He doesn't feel like he's doing things out of obligation. No, he is delighted to give life to those who are in desperate need of life. He, has, he takes pleasure in rescuing a poor and pitiful people for himself. He loves to shower his mercy and his grace on those who don't deserve it. This is the heartbeat of God to show compassion to the poor and the broken, to rescue the lost, to redeem a people from their sins. So so why is it important that we know that? It's important because when you're frustrated at yourself because of your sin, right? you realize that you've fallen short, you realize that you've, you've sinned against God, you realize you've done something you weren't supposed to do or you didn't do something you were supposed to do, when you find yourself frustrated at your sins, frustrated at yourself, wondering if God really even likes you in the moment, right? You wonder, does God even like the kind of person that I am? Remember the love that God has for you because it's not based 
on your performance. It's not based on how good you've been today. Your standing before God is based on the finished work of Jesus. And that's unchanging. That's eternal. That's perfect. So when he looks at you, Christian, he's delighted. He he takes great pleasure in you because he's brought you from death to life. He's taken someone who was far off and he's brought them near to himself. He's adopted you into his family. You're his son. You're his daughter. He loves you. So remember that you bring delight to the heart of God by surrendering to his mercy and his grace. Remember that he's forever pleased with you because you are now in Christ Jesus. Finally, we need to notice that Paul was saved and it, pleasured, it pleased the Lord, but he was saved for a purpose. Right? Look again at verse 16. It says, uh, it was, he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. In order that I may preach him among the Gentiles. Notice that God saved Paul and gave him a purpose. Right? God saved Paul with a task in mind. He saved Paul with works, Ephesians says, that he has prepared beforehand that Paul might walk in. So why was Christ revealed to Paul? in order that he might preach Christ to the Gentiles. Paul received his spiritual life, his office, and his task from God alone. So students, when when you're wrapped up into union with Christ, when you really are aware of and experiencing living in union with Christ, that Christ is in you, that you are in Christ, and he is with you by his Spirit, you're given a clear purpose. You're given a clear purpose. Because you're now a member of the body of Christ. You aren't just saved from your sins. Salvation isn't just bringing you out of something. It's bringing you into something else. So you're saved from a life of sin and you're saved to a life that's marked by Christ. That's marked by biblical faithfulness. That's marked by the the mission and the task and the work that he has prepared for you to walk in. So this is going to look different for each one of us, right? I mean, what, what God's called you to do is different from what God's called me to do. And the, the, the parameters in which you're going to walk in faithfulness is going to look a little bit different. But at the core, our main calling is the same. We're called to love God with everything that we have and to love our neighbor as ourself. So, so you and I may have different jobs. We, have made different, we may have different hobbies. Uh, different affinities, different networks, different connections, different relationships. Um, But we all have the same core purpose. As believers in the Lord Jesus, we're called to love God and love our neighbor. And notice the encouragement that you should have here, right? Because we're thinking about the Apostle Paul. We're thinking about probably one of the greatest missionaries in world history, Uh, one of the most faithful defenders of the gospel, an apostle who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write scripture, right? The same God who worked in Paul's life, who filled him with the Holy Spirit, who empowered him for ministry, who preserved him through trial and tribulation, the same God who did all of those things in Paul's life is at work in yours. You have the same Spirit. You have the same Father, You are united to the same Son. And He's equipping and shaping and leading you into a life that He has prepared for you 
from before the beginning of time. So trust in his work. Follow after him in faithfulness. Know that you have been equipped for a great purpose. That's what Paul believed. That's why Paul immediately begins his task. He says he didn't go consult with other people. He didn't go ask for a second opinion. He didn't go up to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles who were uh, with Jesus during his earthly ministry. No, he hits the ground running and starts preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, right? He starts doing exactly what God had called him to do. So uh, like Paul, he knows that the Gentiles can find freedom in Christ. That He knows that that his works righteousness, his self-righteousness, his obedience to the law didn't get him right standing with God. The gospel did. And he wants all of the Gentiles to know you don't need any of this stuff to get right with God. You don't need the law. You don't need circumcision. You don't need any of these things. You just need to receive his grace. You need to come before him with repentance and faith and trust in him. That's all you need to do. You don't have to do anything. You just have to rest in what Jesus has done. That's what Paul is going out to Damascus uh, and to Arabia to do. He's going to preach to the Gentiles who have never heard that they can be saved, that they can be made right with God by his grace. So after three years of faithfully witnessing, Paul then goes to meet Cephas. He goes to meet Peter. He also meets James, the Lord's brother, while he's in Jerusalem. So he meets these two apostles. And, and, and what we read is, is that Paul didn't know many other Christians in the, the area of Judea. He, he didn't know many believers personally in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area. But those believers had heard of him. Right? They knew about this Paul that came from Tarsus who was ravaging the church. They had heard the stories about these families being ripped from their homes and thrown into prison. They, they heard the stories. Many of them probably saw uh, Paul uh, holding and taking care of the coats while their brother Stephen was being stoned in Acts chapter 8. They had heard the horror stories. And now they're hearing that this same man is preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. They're hearing that this same man is preaching what they believe to be true. That's why they say in verse 23, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And, and what was their response? What could they do but worship? Paul's faithfulness, Paul's transformed life led to people around him worshiping God. I mean, what a model for us. I mean, students, if we think about uh, our own lives and our own connections, our families and friends, our classmates, team members, all of these people that are in our kind of sphere of influence, that you and I would be so transformed by the gospel that the people who know us would be stunned in wondering how this is the same person they knew. I mean, what a model for us. Wouldn't it be amazing to hear that people around you were glorifying God because of the way that you lived? I mean, wouldn't it be amazing to think that person is worshiping the Lord because I was faithfully showing them what a life following Jesus looks like? I mean, wouldn't it be just encouraging to know that your faithfulness to Jesus was leading to the worship of the one that you love the most? And if, if you're a follower of Jesus, you want God to be glorified. You want God to receive the praise that he's due and to know that God will use your faithfulness to bring about his worship from people around you. It's stunning. It's wonderful. What a, what a privilege that the gospel can free us to live out our lives in this way. 
But if we're not careful, we can be guilty of adding something to this gospel and diluting it of its power. So that's what we'll see in chapter 2. Let's start reading in verse 1. Paul writes, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before, uh, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted to the, with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So we see, first of all, in, in the chapter 1 text, that, that Paul was freed by the gospel. This man who was living his life based on this works righteousness was freed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was saved by grace alone. His works meant nothing for his salvation. Paul was freed by the gospel. But now, we see 14 years after his conversion, which is a weird, the way that, that Hebrew culture would understand time and understand numbers is pretty inclusive. So this is 14 years after his conversion, or 11 years after he first met Peter, if you're keeping track with all that. Now we see that Paul defended gospel freedom, right? Paul defended gospel freedom. Paul was freed by the gospel, but now he needs to defend that gospel for the freedom that it provides. So after 14 years of his conversion, Paul comes back to Jerusalem because of a revelation. So he hears from God in some kind of way that he needs to go to Jerusalem. And this is important for us to know because what this shows us is that Paul sought an audience with the apostles, not the other way around. You know, one of the things these false teachers were saying was, you know, the apostles are up here and Paul is kind of like down here. And so... Uh, the apostles have to bring Paul up, have to bring him up into kind of an apostolic role. That's not what we see here in chapter 2. We see Paul going to the apostles of his own accord and seeking an audience with them. He really believed that he was on the same uh, authorial plane as the other apostles because he was called to be an apostle by God. So Paul is not some apostolic understudy that needs to be elevated to become a true apostle because as we'll see in this text, James, Peter, and John added nothing to him. They affirmed and recognized the office that God had given him. So he took two people along with him. He took Barnabas, a co-laborer in Christ, a preacher, a son of encouragement he's called. Um, in Acts, we also see that he's an apostle as well. And he takes Titus. Now Titus is going to be the person we focus on here for a minute. Titus was a Greek. He was a Gentile. 
He was a, a convert of Paul's preaching to the Gentiles. And he brings Titus along with him to show the apostles, look, here's a Gentile. He's uncircumcised. He doesn't follow the law. And yet God has seen fit to save him by his grace. So this Gentile who had not been circumcised, Paul goes with uh, him to the, and his party to the apostles and explains the gospel that he had been preaching for the last 14 years. Now, why does he do this? Verse 2 tells us that Paul wants to explain the gospel to the apostles to make sure that he was not running in vain. Now, this might confuse us because it seems like Paul is doubting his own message. It's like he wants to get some affirmation from the apostles. Like, hey, this is the gospel, right? Like, this is, this is what we believe. I just want to make sure that I'm teaching the right thing. I don't think that's the case. I don't think Paul was wavering in his conviction on what the gospel is. Instead, uh, he knew that there would be some false teachers going around saying, well, Paul believes this, but the Jerusalem apostles believe that. And so Paul wants to make sure for everyone's sake that the apostles in Jerusalem and Paul are preaching the same gospel. And he wants to have this affirmation so that when he goes out and shares the good news of Jesus Christ, he can say, this is what all the apostles are teaching. We know this. You can trust us. You can trust what we're preaching to you. So the gospel that Paul preached was salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. One doesn't have to become a Jew in order to be a Christian. And how do we know that the apostles agreed with him? Because they're all in Jerusalem and all the apostles were formerly Jews. So how do we know that the apostles agreed with Paul? Well, verse 3 lets us know. Titus, the Greek, the Gentile, was not forced to be circumcised. They didn't, they didn't coerce or force Titus to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. Here was a man who had received salvation from God without becoming a Jew first. I mean, John Stott wrote that it was not in order to stir up strife that he brought Titus with him to Jerusalem, but in order to establish the truth of the gospel. This truth is that Jews and Gentiles are accepted by God on the same terms, namely through faith in Jesus Christ, and must therefore be accepted by the church without any discrimination between them. So the application for you and me is everyone who is in existence, everyone who has ever lived, has the image of God stamped on them, that they are made with value and dignity and worth. And because of their sin, they are in desperate need of God's grace. They are in desperate need of new hearts. They are in desperate need of having their eyes healed from spiritual blindness. Every one of us stands level at the cross. There is no kind of person. There is no uh, culture there is no socioeconomic class that is somehow closer to the cross on their own than another group. So any kind of way that we would delineate between kinds of people is utterly destroyed as it relates to the gospel. The gospel clarifies for you and me that we are all made in God's image, that we're all worthy of value and dignity and respect, and we all have a deep, deep need for Jesus. So our greatest need is, is only going to be solved. It's only going to be provided for in the gospel. 
But this view that Paul had, that everyone is level, that you don't have to be a Jew in order to become a Christian, it doesn't matter where you're from or who you are or what you've done, you can come to Christ and receive His freedom. That view of the gospel was not completely unopposed. Paul tells us there were some in the church of Jerusalem that believed you still had to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses in order to follow Christ. This is what Paul is getting at in verses 4 and 5. He calls these guys false brothers. This is, this is a strong rebuke because he's saying, you people in the church who say you love Christ but are adding to the gospel don't know him. You're a false brother. You may look like a brother. You may sound like a brother in the faith, but you are a false brother. You're an imposter because you've transformed the gospel into something that it isn't. You believe, you believe something, but it's not the gospel according to Jesus. So these false brothers were trying to take Titus and all the Gentile believers who received freedom from the grace of God and he wants to, they want to bring those, those men and women into slavery under the law. They want to bring the Gentiles who have experienced freedom in Christ to go under the yoke of slavery that Paul was in when he was thinking that he had to earn his salvation. Because that's what the Pharisees believed the law would do. They believed that the law was the answer to our problem that it was the solution. Instead, the law was a diagnosis. The law reveals to you and me that there's nothing we can do in order to be saved, that God has to be the one to save us. So Paul stood his ground. He didn't budge an inch. Why? Because to add to the gospel is to destroy the gospel. When we attach some kind of work to the gospel of Jesus, we then have reason to boast in our own works. We have some reason to believe that we've contributed to our salvation and that's anti-gospel that is unbiblical doctrine we begin to think about what we contribute to our eternal life and that puffs us up to to now be somehow better off than other believers or better off than other people because oh they may know the gospel but they don't do this right they may love christ they may say that they believe in jesus but they don't pray like that or they don't share the gospel like this, or they don't believe these kinds of things. In other words, false gospels have us asking the question, what have I done? You hear that? False gospels make us ask the question, what have I done? What have I contributed? What kind of a person am I? And we puff ourselves up. Now, we may not wrestle with the issue of circumcision today. Like, I don't think that's an issue in our church. I don't think that's an issue in our culture as to whether or not you have to be circumcised or follow the law of Moses like the Jews did uh, in order to be a Christian. But you and I can insert any kind of work in that slot. Have you prayed enough? Have you read the Bible enough? Have you resisted your lusts and temptations enough? Have you gone to church enough? When we ground our salvation in what we do, we're believing a false gospel. Now, obviously, all of those things are good, right? It's good to pray. It's good to read your Bible. It's good to resist lust and temptation. It's good to go to church. But those things don't save you. Those things don't make you a Christian. It's things that Christians do. So false gospels have us asking the question, what have I done? But the true gospel compels us to ask, what has Christ done? And the answer is everything. Jesus has done all of the work on your behalf and mine. 
Paul preserved the truth of the gospel for the churches in Galatia, for Gentile Christians. In other words, Paul preserved the truth of the gospel for you and me. His faithfulness preserved the truth of the gospel for us today. God in Christ offers to you and me the salvation by grace alone, free of charge. And the apostles agreed. The apostles saw that Paul had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised. That is, his gospel is going to be proclaimed mainly to Gentiles, just as Peter had been preaching primarily to Jews in Jerusalem. And they extended the right hand of fellowship to one another. They were partners in proclaiming this gospel of freedom in the midst of false gospels that were actually very close. So notice for a moment what this means practically for you and me. Peter and Paul had the same message, but their strategy was to proclaim that message to different groups of people. So what this means is that you and I are not bound by some cookie-cutter, razor-sharp gospel proclamation scheme or whatever strategy it is that we come up with. I can do something a certain way, and you can do something a certain way, and we can still be within the bounds of orthodox faithfulness. The same God that gifted Paul with a sharp mind and boldness has also gifted you, but he's probably gifted you in different ways. The way you live out the gospel may look a bit different than other students, right? So maybe your mission field is the baseball team. Maybe your mission field is the band. Maybe it's your neighborhood. Maybe it's that one class that you're in where you have strong relationships. I don't know. But God has given all of us talents to use and a sphere of influence for the sake of gospel proclamation. Don't miss that. Like, don't miss that the same God who raised up, called, justified, and empowered Peter and Paul now dwells within you to do the same kinds of things. God has given you a purpose and he has equipped you by his spirit to be faithful. This is why you and I need to know the word of God. It's why we have to know what his word says. Because if we're going out and proclaiming the gospel without knowing what the gospel is, it's not going to be long before we proclaim something that is not the gospel. We have to know what it says. We have to know what this book says is telling you and me. We have to know what God has revealed. And it's also why we need the church, because this book is hard to understand. <laughs> this book is large, and it's complex at times, and it's, it's clear God has given us the Spirit that illuminates our eyes and our hearts to understand the truth of His Word. But there may be things that you know about God's Word that I don't know. There may be things that I've studied that you haven't studied. We need the church. We need one another so that our faithfulness might grow together. Faithfulness is hard. It's difficult to follow Jesus in this world. But God's word lights our path, and the body of Christ can encourage and challenge us along the way. So finally, the apostles from Jerusalem asked Paul and Barnabas in verse 10 to remember the poor. Now there's a good reason to believe that this meeting that they're having right now is the same meeting that's referenced in Acts chapter 11, verse 30. So they were going to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas, because of a revelation that there was a famine coming. And the, the Christians in Jerusalem were very, very poor. And so they went to Jerusalem partly to give an offering from the, from the Gentile churches to somehow um, meet the needs of those who were impoverished and uh, dealing with the famine. They were there to bring money for the poor. 
That's why Peter could say at the end of verse 10 that serving the poor was the very thing he was eager to do. Now, poverty takes many different forms in our culture, as does wealth, right? So it's not just how much money do you have in your bank account, right? That's one way to view wealth. That's one way to view uh, riches. But it isn't just material wealth that one can have, right? I mean, we all have kinds of riches and resources at our disposal, whether it's our education or our health, our social standing, our relationships, and, and more. All of these can be seen as wealth. All of these can be seen as riches alongside our economic status, how much money is in the bank. The point is this. Every one of us, in some way, is rich. Like every one of us, in some way, has, has great wealth. Many of us are extremely wealthy, not just materially, but in all of these other ways. But there are many around us who are not. There are many in our spheres of influence who are not wealthy. In many of the ways that we've talked about earlier, they're poor. They're in poverty. And Paul was eager to serve the poor. Jesus regularly visited and served and loved on the poor. James tells us that true religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, who are probably two of the most impoverished kinds of people in his day. So the greatest treasure that we have is not material wealth. It's not our physical health. It's not our sphere of influence. It's not our uh, social standing, right? The greatest treasure, the greatest term of wealth that you and I have is our knowledge of Jesus and the gospel. Like that's the most valuable thing that you and I have is eternal life. So what does all of this mean as we think about serving the poor among us? It means that you and I are called to give of our riches for the sake of the poor. That's what it means to follow Christ. That's what it means to follow the, the teachings of the apostles. So we go into our communities or our classrooms or our lunch tables or our sports teams or our clubs and we seek out people who are in need of help and we help them. That's what Christians do. Their ultimate need is Jesus. Right? We're all in agreement. Everyone that we see who does not have Christ, their ultimate supreme need is to know and love Jesus, to receive the truth of the gospel. But they may also need a friend. They may also need an advocate. They may also need someone who will listen to them, someone who will stand up for them, someone who will love them. Someone rooted in the gospel will inevitably produce gospel fruit. So let's not get it backwards as we conclude this morning. Don't get it backwards. We don't do stuff in order to achieve the gospel. That's where Paul was before he was converted. We don't do good to earn something from God. No, we receive freedom from Christ, from self-righteousness, so that we can truly love our neighbors as ourselves. And so you and I now live in this broken world, which if you've been watching the news or on social media or doing anything related to the news this week, you know we live in a broken, broken world. So you and I as free people live in this broken world and share with those still in bondage where they can get their chains removed. We know the answer. That's the life that you have been called to live. What a privilege. What an honor. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that our bonds have been broken. We praise you for taking the poor, the destitute, the oppressed, those who do not deserve your mercy. We thank you for showering us with mercy. God, we thank you for taking us as sinners who were traitors, rebels against your throne and your kingdom. And you've made us into citizens with clean slates and more than that, with full righteousness. God, you've clothed us in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that as we think about this gospel of freedom that we believe, that we live in, would you, God, Holy Spirit, by your power, would you allow those indicatives, those things that we know and believe to to flow out into action, that they would lead to gospel imperatives, that we would be people who are marked by faithfulness to you, faithfulness to your word. Lord, I pray that you would search our hearts to see if there's any wicked way within us. And at the core of that searching, I pray that you would look for ways in which we might be believing the gospel that's false. God, help us to root out false beliefs. Help us to root out our tendency towards works righteousness. God, continue to show us who we are in Christ. Free people who have been tasked to free people. Lord, help us to be friends to love our neighbors as ourself, to proclaim that the gospel really is good news to everyone. Lord, we pray that you would do this for the sake of your glory, for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.